Okay, today is going to be one of our chronological days as we talk about the United States between 1840 uh, and 1852. And between those years, and more specifically, between 1845 and 1848, the United States basically fulfilled the manifest destiny that I've been talking about and that its leaders had dreamed about almost since the country has been founded by annexing the then Republic of Texas in 1845 and then winning what is now California, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, and Utah and also extending the Texas border all the way to the Rio Grande River where it is uh, today uh, uh, through the defeat of Mexico in the Mexican War of 1846 to 1848. By doing these things, America added about one million square miles of territory and stretched itself as so many of its citizens had predicted that it would from ocean to ocean. But ultimately, all this was not a cause of celebration because in the tradition of the famous adage, be careful what you wish for, you may get it, And if you remember nothing else from your four years in college, remember that. Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. America got territory in the 1840s, but it also got what came with that territory, and that is the revival of the slavery question in the form of whether slavery would be allowed in the uh, new territories, both the Louisiana Purchase territories that had come in in 1803 and the new territories that had been acquired or taken from Mexico in the Mexican War. Now, this question of slavery, which so many, especially those in the Democratic Party, had tried so mightily to keep off the national agenda since the Missouri Crisis of 1820, was now unavoidable placed squarely on the table by American military and political success in the Southwest. Within a little more than a decade after the American Army's great triumph on the barricades of Mexico City in 1847, the issue of slavery had destroyed a major political party, the Whigs, rearranged the American political party system along sectional lines, with the Whig Party's successor, the Republican Party, having no strength in the South, no existence in the South, uh, and most former Southern Whigs switching over to the Democratic Party. Uh, Slavery caused Northern and Southern congressmen to attack each other physically on the floor of Congress and carry guns onto the floor uh, of of Congress. There was a saying in the 1850s that the only congressmen who were not packing a gun were packing two guns. Slavery also caused a virtual civil war in the territories as pro- and anti-slavery settlers tried to kill each other. And finally, of course, slavery caused an actual civil war, which cost over 600,000 American lives and without question remains the most traumatic moment in the nation's history. So, in another of the many ironies of American history, the price of achieving manifest destiny was a high one, as its proponents knew it would be, but it was a very different price than the one they expected. Instead of that price being paid in the form of American lives and Indian lives, or American lives and Mexican lives, it would be paid for wholly with American blood. 
Now, the 1840s began with the inauguration of the first Whig president, William Henry Harrison. Uh, this signal Whig triumph, however, quickly went sour, as we mentioned. Harrison died of pneumonia within a month of uh, assuming office after giving an overly lengthy uh, inaugural address in cold weather, uh, another uh, example of why brevity is always better. And Harrison's replacement former Vice President John Tyler, while nominally a Whig, he had run for the presidency with Harrison, was really a Democrat, uh, a, a Democrat from Virginia. He had been added to the ticket in order to attract Southern votes. Now, President Tyler angered the Whigs by, in Jacksonian fashion, uh, 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 Tyler did not like Jackson personally, but his politics were pretty, pretty Jacksonian. Uh, Tyler vetoed bills that would have rechartered the Bank of the United States. The Whigs were still trying to get it, uh, uh, get it revived by the 1840s. But more important than this was Tyler's call for the annexation of Texas. Now, remember, Texas had won its independence from Mexico in 1836 and was now, by the early 1840s, nominally an independent nation. Now, Tyler, as a Southerner, viewed Texas as an important addition to the Cotton Empire and the Slave Empire. Although he preferred, like many expansionists in the Democratic Party, to phrase his sentiments in the language of Manifest Destiny and not the explicit language of slavery expansion. But Northerners, especially Northern Whigs, were not fooled by this. And here we see the beginning of cracks in what had been, pre-1840s, been a solid pro-Manifest Destiny, pro-expansionist consensus in the United States that took in virtually everyone. Now, Northern Whigs opposed the annexation of Texas. Now, like the supporters of annexation, who were their opponents, they pulled their punches, so to speak, uh, arguing that the annexation of Texas would uh, provoke a war with Mexico. But underneath this Northern Whig argument was, as was the case with the pro-annexationists, slavery. In the case of the Northern Whigs, a fear that uh, annexing Texas would extend slavery well beyond the South, where Northerners had hoped to contain it. Now, Texas, of course, uh, was and is a huge state, big, bigger than Pennsylvania, New York, and all the New England states put together. Texas would almost certainly upset the equilibrium that had settled over national American politics with regard to the slavery issue since the Missouri Compromise of 1820 and put slavery squarely back on the national agenda from which so many American politicians, especially Democratic politicians, had sought to keep it. Now, in 1844, Tyler negotiated an annexation treaty with Texas, which, although nominally independent, had always wanted to be part of the United States. But the treaty was rejected in the Senate after northern pressure. The presidential election of 1844 then became a referendum on Texas, with the Democratic nominee, James K. Polk, a Southerner, basing his campaign on annexation, and his opponent, the perennial Whig candidate, Henry Clay, uh, only one of two three-time losers in the presidential race. Does anybody know who the other one was? William Jennings, William Jennings Bryan. You know the dates, Ted? You got it. Very good. 
very good. Now, Clay being Clay, switching positions quite often, uh, was first an anti-annexationist, said he was against annexing Texas, but then shifted to a position of conditional annexation. Uh, uh, he said he was in favor of annexation if it wouldn't cause a war with Mexico, which of course is impossible to tell unless you actually did the deed, annex Texas. So he's sort of trying to play both sides of the streets. Now, to Clay's opponents, this was typical Clay, uh, the shifting around. Uh, 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 Clay was either the great compromiser or a man without principle, uh, depending on your perspective. In in many ways, I think he was looked at uh, almost as the Bill Clinton uh, uh, of of, of his day, without Bill Clinton's extracurricular activities. (laughs) Now, as it happened... This shift from being anti-annexationist to being a conditional annexationist, will take Texas if it doesn't cause war with Mexico, cost Henry Clay the election. And this 1844 was his last chance and his best chance. Um, uh, uh, he pursued the presidency his entire life, and he never got it. In fact, he might be the most distinguished American to actively pursue the presidency and not get it. Now, why did he lose? Well, he lost because a group of abolitionists in New York who had formed a tiny splinter anti-slavery party called the Liberty Party, uh, which by the 1850s would combine with many other groups to form the Republican Party, and we'll get to that, but at this point in 1844 was minuscule, maybe 10,000 members total in this party. But this Liberty Party, which uh, opposed annexation uh, uh, and and, and, and which was enraged by Henry Clay's uh, apparently flip-flopping on the issue, uh, they attracted enough Whigs to vote for the Liberty Party in protest against this, enough to swing the state of New York from Clay to Polk by the narrowest of margins, just a few thousand votes. And wouldn't you know it, it was New York that gave Polk the victory. They were, it was the decisive state in the Electoral College. Now Polk becomes the president and not Clay. Now James K. Polk's victory, as narrow as it had been, was considered an endorsement of the annexationist position, and the annexation uh, uh, treaty uh, uh, was passed by the Senate in 1845, just as Tyler was leaving office. And Texas now became a state, and of course a slave state. But the new president, James K. Polk, as of 1845, a southerner, a supporter of slavery, an admirer of Andrew Jackson. He was known as Young Hickory. Uh, uh, Andrew Jackson was, of course, Old Hickory. Uh, And Polk as an ardent expansionist. Polk had a much more ambitious agenda than merely annexing Texas. Polk had his eye on vast amounts of Mexican territory, including the area of Mexico that was above the Rio Grande River. Now, this area was disputed territory, both Mexico and Texas, now meaning America, uh, as of 1845, claimed this territory. Polk also coveted California and what are now the states of New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. Again, coveting it as new slave territory. In 1846, basically on a pretext, Polk provoked a war with Mexico at a time when the Mexican government was relatively weak and divided. Now, Polk provoked this war really in the way that a schoolyard bully would pick on the weakest kid in the class and stole his lunch money. That happened in the Bronx all the time. 
Who's for having a B? <laughs> now, I think that's really the way to describe the Mexican War, almost like a schoolyard bully pushing, pushing a weaker kid around. Now, the Mexican War was not unexpectedly a unmitigated military triumph for the United States. Everything went well. Uh, American troops pushed deep into Mexican territory and took Mexico City itself with a head-on frontal assault in 1847. Now, this battle, and really the entire Mexican War, provided the opportunity for military officers who would famously fight each other during the Civil War, like Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant, and James Longstreet. It gave them the opportunity to fight alongside each other in a victorious cause. In 1848, the Mexican War concluded with Mexico ceding uh, what is now California, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Texas above the Rio Grande uh, to the United States. An acquisition that the United States still takes for granted today, but with with, but which Mexicans still strongly resent uh, uh, and remember. In fact, what may anger Mexicans most of all is not the actual taking of these areas by the United States, but the fact that many Americans, most Americans, regard this territory as naturally part of the United States. They may not even understand how it came to be part of the United States. Now, this disregard or even ignorance of history, which uh, many non-Americans see as a peculiarly uh, American trait, uh, I think has fueled much anti-American sentiment abroad, what we might call the ugly American syndrome. And if any of you take my Nation in a Modern World course, my History 132 course in the winter, you'll see how American ignorance of Vietnamese history, for example, almost preordained our failure in the war in Vietnam. So history, once again, repeats itself. So, by 1848, the goals of Manifest Destiny had largely been fulfilled, and America stretched from ocean to ocean. Uh, with, of course, the matter of the Indians inhabiting the West uh, to be decided in the future. And we'll be talking later in this course about how that matter was decided uh, in the years after the Civil War. But now the question was unavoidable. What would be the status of slavery in these new territories, as well as in areas of the old Louisiana Purchase, like Kansas and Nebraska, that were almost ready to become states? Well, the anti-slavery northerners had their answer ready. At the very beginning of the Mexican War in 1846, a northern congressman from Pennsylvania named David Wilmot, W-I-L-M-O-T, offered a resolution called the Wilmot Proviso, barring slavery from all territories captured from Mexico in the war, an indication of how confident the Americans were of winning the war. Because this is the beginning of the war. There's just an assumption that they're going to win. Okay? So the Wilmot Proviso says, after we win, uh, and of course we will win, uh, this territory shall not be slave territory. Now, the Wilmot Proviso that passed the House of Representatives but lost in the Senate, so it didn't become law, uh, divided Congress sharply along sectional lines, with Southerners, whether they were Democrats or Whigs, opposing it, and Northerners, whether they were Democrats or Whigs, supporting it. Most Northerners and Westerners, in fact, were uncomfortable with the idea of the Mexican War itself because of its connection with slavery. But 
they kept their criticisms reasonably muted once the war got underway. And, of, of course, it went so successfully for the United States for fear of uh, appearing unpatriotic. Remember what happened to the Federalists during the War of 1812, which they opposed. The Federalist Party ceased to exist. Now, in the wake of the Mexican War and the American victory in the Mexican War, there were essentially four separate positions on what to do about slavery in the territories. The first position was that of the Wilmot Proviso. No slavery at all in the territories. This was the position of many northern Whigs, as well as, of course, abolitionists of the Liberty Party that had swung the election to Polk, ironically, in 1844, and also of another anti-slavery party that we'll talk about more uh, on Wednesday, uh, known as the Free Soil Party. That was the first position. No slavery in the territories. The second position was the other, shall we say, extreme position here from the South. Slavery should be legal in all territories as a form of property, like a horse or a plow. Now, this view is exemplified by South Carolina's John C. Calhoun, uh, who was a believer in the right of a state to nullify federal law. Remember, Calhoun was behind the, uh, uh, the nullification crisis uh, uh, in 1832 and 1833. He was, uh, uh, he was the South Carolinian who was urging uh, uh, South Carolina to uh, nullify that federal tariff law. He felt that states had the right uh, to do that. So that's the second view. Slavery is legal in the territories. The third possible approach, this one a more moderate one between the two extremes, advocating extending the Missouri Compromise Line of 1820, below which uh, uh, slavery uh, 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 was legal and above which slavery was barred, uh, and had hitherto just applied to the Louisiana Purchase to extend this line all the way to the Pacific. Remember, the Missouri Compromise Line, that's the southern uh, border of, uh, of, uh, of Missouri, uh, 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 you know, below, below which you can't, uh, uh, you can't have slavery. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, there's... Actually, actually, it's the northern border. I'm sorry. It's the northern border of, uh, of, of Missouri, uh, of, you know... Uh, below which you can't have, above which you can't have slavery, below which you can have slavery. Okay, now I got it right. Extend that line all the way to the Pacific. To divide this new territory uh, that we had acquired, America had acquired from Mexico, uh, and effectively divide California in half, because if you think of the Missouri Compromise line going all the way to the Pacific, California's been divided in half. Now, this position, extend the Missouri Compromise line all the way to the Pacific, was the position of the moderate Whigs, uh, uh, north and south, as well as of James K. Polk himself uh, in the last years of his administration. He left office in 1849. Uh, when Polk saw the destructive and divisive potential of the territorial questions of the Mexican War. So that was the third position, extend the Missouri Compromise Line uh, uh, all the way to, uh, uh, all the, way to the uh, Pacific Ocean. And finally, a fourth position, another in-between position, uh, endorsed by many Democrats, including the Democratic presidential candidate in the 1848 election, Lewis Cass of Michigan. This was the idea of what is known as popular sovereignty, in which the settlers in any territory... Uh, wherever it was, whether it was north or south, you know, above the uh, Missouri Compromise Line or, uh, or below the Missouri Compromise Line, uh, uh, could vote 
as to whether they would have slavery in the territory. Now, this popular sovereignty idea had a surface appeal, and indeed, as we shall see, it became the mainstream democratic position on slavery in the 1850s through its spokesman, Stephen Douglas, uh, with, uh, with whom we'll be spending uh, some time uh, uh, later on in the course. But popular, popular sovereignty also had a lot of weaknesses and some possibly fatal weaknesses. In, its adi- in, in addition to its moral abstention, regarding slavery. You know, popular sovereignty advocates like Stephen Douglas uh, always said they didn't care whether slavery existed or not, whether it was voted up or down, as long as the election was fair. In addition to this, the popular sovereignty idea never said when the slavery election was going to be held. Would it be held when the territory was founded, uh, as northerners who were against slavery wanted, or would it be held at the actual time of statehood. Remember, first you're a territory, then you're a state. Southerners favored this, uh, uh, this, this vote when the uh, statehood was achieved, when it was actually coming in as a state, because they figured that if slavery could come into the area during its pre-statehood territorial phase, it would be established and a fait accompli, a done deal, by the time statehood rolled around years later. Now, these four positions... No slavery in the territories, slavery in the territories, uh, extend the Missouri Compromise line and popular sovereignty would frame the debate over slavery in the territories uh, throughout the 1850s. But the presidential election of 1848 brought more uncertainty over the slavery issue, not less. Now, Cass, the uh, Democratic candidate on the popular sovereignty platform, Uh, was defeated in the 1848 election by the Whig candidate, Zachary Taylor, who was the military hero of the Mexican War. Now, the Whigs nominated Taylor because of this alone, because, again, they they, they were lukewarm about the war in the first place, and they thought they could cover their tracks by nominating the military hero uh, of, of, of the war. Uh, To some extent, that would be like uh, assuming the Iraq war was incredibly uh, victorious. Everything just worked out great. Uh, uh, It would be the Democrats nominating David Petraeus. Uh, The Democrats opposed the war, but now the war worked out well. Well, why don't we nominate the the general who led us to victory uh, during the war? Well, that's what the Whigs do here. They're lukewarm on the war, and many oppose the war. But they nominate Zachary Taylor so that they're not caught on the wrong side of it. Now, Taylor being a professional military man who had just moved around the country all his life, uh, had no position on the slavery issue. He had really no politics, which for the Whigs was exactly the point. When he assumed office in 1849, Taylor uh, and the nation as a whole were confronted with the slavery issues head on, since thousands of Americans were now pouring into California, lured by the discovery of gold. Uh, uh, there were about 50,000 Americans in California by 1849. There was now unbearable pressure to decide whether California would come into the United States as a free or a slave state, since it now had enough of a population to become a state. Now, the issue of slavery in California brought other slavery-related issues to the forefront of a nation, which was increasingly divided along sectional lines and increasingly in a bad mood. For example, abolitionists had 
always considered slavery in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, a moral abomination. Slavery was legal in Washington, D.C., as well as the slave trade itself being legal. Southerners, for their part, had long been outraged over the refusal of northern states to return fugitive slaves who had escaped to the north, since the Supreme Court had ruled that the northern states were under no legal obligation to return escaped slaves. The South now demanded a federal fugitive slave law that would require the return of escaped slaves. In 1850, all of this came to a head when California formally applied for statehood. Southern senators, notably John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, who was now aged and dying, threatened secession if slavery was barred in California and if it was not guaranteed in the territories, all the territories, by the Constitution. For its part, the North, represented by uh, uh, a Whig senator from New York named William Seward, uh, who later became famous because he uh, ran against uh, uh, Lincoln for the presidency for the Republican nomination in 1860 and lost and then became his Secretary of State, William Seward, he argued that there was a higher law than the Constitution, one that proclaimed all persons equal, that came from God, and that this higher law should prohibit slavery in the territories and eventually in the South itself. With battle lines drawn and tempers flaring and incendiary rhetoric everywhere, it seemed that, as in 1820, the nation was careening towards secession and civil war in 1850. But in the twilight of his political career, Henry Clay, the great compromiser, once again found a way to stave off disunion, although he bought the nation only about 10 more years of time. Clay cobbled together what became known as the Compromise of 1850, with enough concessions to the North and the South that it passed, but not with so many concessions that either side was satisfied. For the North, the Compromise of 1850 brought California into the Union as a free state. And it abolished the slave trade in Washington, D.C., but not slavery itself. For the South, New Mexico and Utah became territories with no restriction on slavery, basically a popular sovereignty idea. The settlers could vote. And, most importantly, a fugitive slave law. Now, after emotional speeches by a dying John C. Calhoun uh, against the compromise, uh, Calhoun had to be basically brought in on a stretcher. He couldn't even speak, so his speech was read for him as he sort of reclined in the well of the Senate. And also emotional speeches uh, by, a nor by Northern uh, uh, Senator uh, Daniel Webster from uh, uh, Massachusetts uh, for the Compromise, and for passing the Fugitive Slave Act, as you would imagine, completely outraging his own constituency in the anti-slavery state of Massachusetts, uh, the Compromise actually passed. Now, for the anti-slavery North, the Fugitive Slave Act was an incredibly bitter pill to swallow, the most bitter of any single element of this Compromise of 1850 for either side. The Fugitive Slave Law not only allowed southern slaveholders to travel north and apprehend slaves who had escaped, or who they claimed had escaped, 
uh, they would appear before special commissioners for trials at which the slaves themselves or the escaped slaves themselves uh, could not testify. So there was a tremendous opportunity for fraud here. But the Fugitive Slave Act also permitted federal marshals to deputize civilians, even passers-by on the street, to assist them in apprehending these escaped slaves. For rabidly anti-slavery states like Massachusetts, this was almost incomprehensible. Although, in a practical sense, this didn't come up all that often because only about 1,000 slaves out of uh, 3 million uh, uh, slaves in the South uh, were able to escape uh, each year. But of course, as is so often the case, it was the principle of the thing. And Massachusetts and other northern states quickly passed what were known as personal liberty laws, which allowed those states the right to refuse to cooperate with attempts to return fugitive slaves. Although the Supreme Court soon uh, held these personal liberty laws unconstitutional because they contradicted or conflicted with the Fugitive Slave Act itself. And here's more irony for you. The South devoted supposedly to the cause of civil of, 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 of states' rights, states' rights, gets one of the most intrusive federal laws in history, bringing the central government into people's lives, even their homes. Thomas Jefferson would be spinning in his grave. And the North, which had derided the idea of nullification when South Carolina tried to do it in 1832, now attempted their own version of nullification of a federal law with these personal liberty laws that sought to nullify the Fugitive Slave Act. Proof not only of the persistence of hypocrisy in American political life, it never goes away, but also of the centrality of the issue of slavery to the crises of the 1850s and the Civil War. If the Civil War was really about states' rights, as many Southerners argued then, and even argue today, about keeping the central government out of people's lives, then why did the South insist on a fugitive slave law? And if the Civil War was really about the primacy of the federal government, as some Northerners who tried to minimize the slave issue argue even today, then why did these personal liberty laws, why were they enacted? The nation almost broke up in 1850 and did in 1861, in my view at least, not because of abstract principles of states' rights or central government power, although they were of some importance, but for a more practical and real reason. Slavery as a political, social, cultural, and economic issue. Essentially, the question was, what kind of country would America be? What would its rules be? And slavery was the issue that crystallized those questions. No matter how Southerners, or Northerners for that matter, tried to avoid it, the issue here was slavery. No matter where you start, you keep coming back to it, running into it like a rigged maze in which any turn you make will eventually bring you up against it with no escape. The slavery issue turned courtly, gentlemanly Southerners into wild-eyed kidnappers and sober, cautious northerners into lawbreakers. And it took both outside the rational debate 
that has generally characterized our political dialogue throughout our nation's history. Few, if any, issues could make so many men so angry, so paranoid, so violent as slavery. States' rights could not do so. The issue of centralized federal power could not do so. The tariff could not do so. The national bank issue could not do so. As contentious as those issues were, slavery could and did. And as the nation breathed a sigh of relief after the Compromise of 1850, the slavery issue promised to further divide North and South during the coming decade. Already, Southern leaders were calling for the annexation of Cuba and other Caribbean and Central American countries to be part of a new empire of slavery that would take the concept of manifest destiny to new heights, or if you were a northerner, to new depths. While in the north, a Connecticut housewife named Harriet Beecher Stowe was writing a novel that would, as I mentioned last time, outsell every book except the Bible, and which would turn millions of wavering northerners sharply against slavery, the powerful Uncle Tom's cabin. It was almost as if America was becoming two nations, with slavery as a symbolic and practical dividing line between them. And in many ways, they were already two nations, as our earlier discussion of the northern and southern markets and economies, I hope, showed. But by the 1850s, under pressure from the slavery issue, those differences were already becoming much more pronounced and intractable. And two separate ideologies, or worldviews, or value systems had developed in the North and South, competing against each other to define the nation as a whole. These value systems were self-justifying, each consciously presenting itself as the route to the good life, to the best society. Although they sprang from the same soil, so to speak, both Northerners and Southerners had signed the Declaration of Independence, both Northerners and Southerners had adopted the Constitution, but now they drew very different conclusions from the circumstances of the nation's birth and had very different understandings of the principles of freedom, of equality, on which the nation was based, on the definitions of what freedom and what equality meant. And in our next two classes, we will explore these two competing value systems, North and South, and see how they define these principles of freedom and equality, how they critiqued each other, and how, ultimately, they caused the Civil War.